West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me are my good friends, Mike and Brian. But today on this New Year's episode, we have a couple of special guests. Joining us today are Ashley and Jenny. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us today. You're Thanks very welcome. Us. They come from a pair of podcasts, which need no introduction, but I'm going to let them introduce themselves and tell us where they are from anyway. Ashley, tell us about yourself and where people can find you. Yeah. Hey, um, I am on the MinMax podcast with my husband, Alan, and our friend, Kyle. Um, we're, my husband and I are currently living in Nashville. Uh, we're still new to it, so it doesn't feel like we live here because we moved during uh, the pandemic. <laughs> so we're just kind of like, I feel like we're kind of like, haunting nashville more than anything um, you basically just exchanged one set of walls for another at this point yeah yeah it feels very bizarre um but um i'm working for an episcopal church as a communications director uh which is really fun because i get to connect with people online which i've been doing through the podcast for years now um and uh it's been really great to kind of imagine new ways to develop religious community in this really strange time um so while i I totally get why it's stressful for people in another in other ways um it's actually been really fascinating um brainstorming with a church that's actually very open uh to this kind of change which is rare um so i'm kind of just eating it up nice uh and i guess i'll introduce myself Uh, i'm i'm jenny and uh you can find me on the podcast saving the game i'm uh, one of three hosts uh, the other two are Grant and Peter. Um, and uh, in in my personal life, I am a librarian. I run a very small library in rural Ontario, um, which has been interesting recently. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mentioned before we started recording, actually, uh, I was surprised uh, that, that and I'm a little bit exhausted today because people actually came into the library. <laughs> How dare they? How dare the scandal? Um, I know. <laughs> but yeah, so so it's it's been very quiet the last little while, and that's been very odd because my library is known as the loud one. I call it the loudbrary, <laughs> <laughs> and it's because it's it mostly caters to kids and retirees, and that's uh, an interesting set of demographics to work with, and. Uh, yeah, that's basically what, what I've been uh, doing the last couple of years. Now, Jenny, as a librarian, I wanted to ask you, are you familiar with the podcast Welcome to Night Vale? Oh, very, very much, very much. Okay, because I've always been curious. Are libraries actually that dangerous? Do all, yes. all librarians go to work in hooded, dark robes? Yes. And when you have children's programs, they usually end with the children forming some type of uh, rebel alliance to overthrow you and save yes. the community. Yes. That's what I thought. That sounds about right. Okay. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) And whatever you do, don't go to the dog park. We don't actually have a dog park. Uh, That's what they want you to think. A park that (laughs) makes really strange noises in the wind and might be haunted. So (laughs) that's just as good, I guess. Well, uh, once again, ladies, thank you for being here. Uh, Brian, how are you doing today? Good, sir. I'm doing pretty good. I've got my hot chocolate. 
I've got my space shuttle slippers on and a sweater. It's down to about 70 degrees here in Los Angeles. So, you know, frigid. <laughs> Believe it or not, Ryan. Ryan. <laughs> Ryan. <laughs> it is slushing in Boston now. We have rain, we have snow, and it's making asphalt snow cones on my driveway. <laughs> I want you to take the frigid back. <laughs> I had to scrape. Jealous of your slush. Oh yeah. I, you I can have to... it. Come here. It's free for the taking. I'll take the the slush over the inch of ice I had to scrape off my windshield this morning mm. that made me late for work. Yes, hard. Yes, yeah. yeah. So. A slush is far better. Yeah, deep here in the heart of Texas, we had a uh, low this morning of about 40. And I stepped outside and go, ooh, that's brisk. <laughs> it's warmed up to 64, though. So to me, it feels great. To everyone else in Texas, getting this cold this early in this season, panic is starting to set in. Like, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, if it's 8 degrees, it's still biking weather. So <laughs> Around here, it gets down to about uh, 75 and people start putting on their parkas. It's hilarious. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I... That's so funny that you guys mentioned that because I was missing snow and I happened to just make a joke online about how when we were living in Chicago, I would complain about the cold all the time. And now that we're <laughs> here, I was actually missing it and like was waxing philosophical about it. But I was totally making fun of myself and my, my sort of like fickle opinions about weather. And people got so defensive about 60 degrees that <laughs> I, I was like, what is happening? I saw that. I was like, I'm going to chime in here. Ooh, I am walking away. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. What about you, Mike? How have you been doing? I thought I covered that when I said that it was uh, slushing on my driveway. No. <laughs> I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Moving Glad right along. It. All right. Well, let's jump into Geek Out. And as is tradition with our guests, uh, we shall let them go first. And... Ashley, you shall go first. Cool, sounds good. I've um, I've been geeking out about the the fact that I have the time to actually like, sit down and read for fun lately, <laughs> way more than I have <laughs> in the past several years. And the the thing that I the the genre that I tend to lean towards the most or go after the most has been um, a lot of like surrealist fiction, especially surreal surrealist horror. Um, and so as soon as I got my library card, because I don't feel like I live somewhere until I have a library card, well before I get a driver's license. I, Priorities, I, yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, um, I, I started pulling books off the shelves. And a, a, an author I actually got to meet in the UK when we lived there was Max Porter. And I don't know how familiar anybody is with his work, but his like big book that came out was his debut novel. It's called Grief is a Thing with Feathers. And they produced a, a show, like an actual play that Cillian Murphy was in. And it's really very bizarre. Like you kind of have to go into it very open because um, it's about this family who's, you know, lost their their mother, wife, and, and this, this really strange character um, called Crow, who is an actual giant crow, uh, comes in and is like a manifestation of their grief ultimately. But oh, wow. um, the ways that grief are described and, and the ways the perspectives of the two boys and the, the father are described are really beautiful. Um, and it's a book that even when you finish it, you want to pick it up and read it again because you'll get something new out of it. But the reason I met him was because he was doing a book tour for a new book um, that he had just 
published last year called Lani, which is also very bizarre. Um, it has to do with like the, the lore of the, the, around the green man in uh, mm. Scotland. Mm, yes. Yeah. And um, it's very creepy. It kind of takes like a, like a more Stephen King approach to, to horror. It's just like unsettling and it has to do with like a small community and um, the yeah, antagonist kind of like eats gossip ultimately and eats wow. like sort of like antagonistic feelings between people. Um, and, I have and family then... members that are like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so again, it's focuses on this, this family, a, a mother and a father and their son, Lonnie, who um, has great artistic ability and, and gets together with a local neighbor who starts to teach him how to, to, you know, improve his artistic ability, but there are some like rumors going around, et cetera. So that's also a very beautiful and and sad um, novel, but really beautiful. But the reason I'm kind of freaking out about him lately is because he just recently announced a new book coming out that'll come out next year called The Death of Francis Bacon. Um, that actually has very little to do with Francis Bacon specifically, but everything to do with the process of death and dying. Um, hmm. And so it's like a, a much more almost like Again, it's it's relatively surrealist. So he's just kind of exploring the process of losing one's grip on their own life and what that mm -hmm. kind of looks like just in text. And the reason I, I love him as much as I do is when I got to talk to him, he the way he writes is actually intended to be performative. Like he cares about the performance of a text. He doesn't like things to just stay on the page flat. So it's it's not just about you know, what is represented through syntax and, and you know, punctuation punctuation and such. It, he also plays with font um, and not in the sense of like, he writes in papyrus. That's not the type of thing. <laughs> 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 but, um, but like even like slight differences in font size or he'll use, a, he'll use two different, in Lonnie, he'll use like two different fonts and one will be serif and one will be without serif, but it's the change is slight enough that you don't actually notice it until you go back. And I had actually engaged with Lonnie as a, an audiobook before I read it in text because hmm. I bought it at that, that book signing. And so in the audiobook, they had differences in tone when the antagonist would come in and come out of the narrative. In the text, you don't actually see, you don't get that like direct change in, in voice quality. Um, you get a change in font um, styling. So serif and, and sans serif. And so he does really, really subtle things like that, or he'll like frame text in such a way that you kind of have to be paying attention to his patterns to notice when a character changes or suddenly if like they, they change scene entirely, but it makes it kind of a, like a fun mystery almost. And it makes it so subtle that it actually engrosses you in the story far more and it immerses you in the narrative in a way that you wouldn't have thought of before or thought was possible with something like a novel. I mean, all literature is is immersive in some regard, but he takes it in another level to where you actually feel like you're involved in something that's ex that extends beyond the page in a way that is, you know, it just seems a lot different than just, say, enjoying a story like, uh, you know, Harry Potter or um, anything else that we really enjoy, The Last Unicorn, etc. It's It's involving your actual perception 
in a, in a way that goes beyond, I think, typical storytelling. So I just, I'm, I love him to death. Also, he told a fart joke during his book signing. <laughs> the, fact that, the fact that an Englishman could stand in front of a crowd of very sort of stiff upper lip Scots and tell a fart joke really just won me over in a big way. Uh, so <laughs> huge fan. If you have a chance, uh, definitely check out his work. Um, before I jump into my geek out, Ashley, may I make two recommendations? Please do. For horror? Yes. So, uh, you may already have read them. Uh, they aren't terribly new or anything like that. Are you familiar with And the Trees Crept In by Don Kurtigich? No. Do that's it. A that's a okay. fantastic title. I'm grabbing yeah. a pen. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you got the pen? That sounds amazing. Yeah, I do. Okay, good, good. So yeah, that's and the trees crept in by Don Kurtigich, uh, which uh, I have not. I've only read the audiobook. I've not read the physical book, but apparently it does similar things with typography. Oh, nice! And a sort of a slow descent into madness. Um, I love that. There, there you go. Uh, so yeah, that one's a YA horror. Um, okay. I was not terribly scared as a an adult, but had I read it about ten years ago, oh my goodness, I would not have slept. Um, <laughs> And uh, I'm thinking of ending things by Ian Reed, okay, which has recently been apparently poorly adapted into a movie on Netflix. That one is just bizarre. You will be deeply uncomfortable. You will not know why. <laughs> That's how I felt about reading um, House of Leaves. It was I was reading it and everyone thought I was doing homework because it looks like a textbook. Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm just fixating on these footnotes because they're telling a really unsettling story on top of an already unsettling story. <laughs> <laughs> i'm fascinated by any work of fiction that has footnotes yeah oh yeah oh goodness if you're looking for footnotes can, can i make another recommendation <laughs> i mean if, we didn't, long, if i can make this a clockable hour <laughs> in my reader's advisory section on my timesheet uh powers of darkness powers of darkness which is the oh my gosh the, the thing the the uh Dracula translated into Icelandic, translated back to English. Oh my goodness, the footnotes. Some of them are so funny. Because <laughs> it's like it's like the the translator, the more recent translator, it's like he knew. Because like, no spoilers, because it's right at the beginning. It's like two pages in, but it's like, um, it appears that this particular Dracula is a little bit more anxious to get to know, um, oh, what's his face? Jonathan? First, Jonathan Harker, yeah. Looks like he's a little more anxious to get to know Jonathan Harker because he appears as a bat very, very quickly here. It's just like... Huh. Interesting. Yeah, just lovely little footnotes all over the place. It's like 90% footnote. I love it. I'm reminded um, of the uh, of the core rulebook for the RPG Unknown Armies. Uh, uh, yeah. It had footnotes as well. Some of them would make you laugh. Some would make you go, huh, that's silly. And others would send a little jolt of ice up your spine. Hmm. Lovely. See, usually when I'm reading a book, it's the footnotes that, this just sounds so bad. It's the footnotes that really get my attention, that are really, you know, have the really exciting tidbits. But of course, it, I'm also a lot of times reading historical books and, and <laughs> fencing manuals and things of that sort. But So we're geeking out about footnotes. We are. Uh, I, am, I am also geeking out about books, but in a bit of a different way. Uh, this was the year that I got really into um, reading challenges, uh, specifically the Pop Sugar Reading Challenge, uh, which is a set of 40 to 50 uh, reading prompts. So it's like, read a book. Uh, one of the ones for this past year was um, read a book with a bird on the cover. Um, and some of them... <laughs> are a little trickier like the one 
like one of the ones for this upcoming year is read a book with a family tree in it. I'm like, oh man, I don't nice. want to read Lord of the Rings again. <laughs> um, oh no, 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 they have this. They have this new thing. It's called the Silmarillion. You'll love it. <laughs> oh, no. Real light reading. Don't worry about it all. You'll knock it out in an afternoon. The... I blew through that book, believe it or not. I spent so many, so many hours in airports that summer. I didn't have anything oh, yeah. else to do. <laughs> and speaking yeah. of footnotes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, anyway, that's been my big thing for like the whole dang year. And now I, I have one prompt left and that's a book with a map in it. Um, and I'm probably going to use Powers of Darkness, uh, that or um, Five Days at Memorial, which is about um, it, it's a sort of a reconstruction of five days at Memorial Hospital in uh, New Orleans uh, during Hurricane Katrina and the five days where... Ooh. Basically, doctors had to decide who lived and who died, and it was very, very hard on them. I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish that one by the end of the year. It's really, <laughs> really, really heavy right from the get-go. Yeah, sounds so, like it. Who knows? Who knows? It will probably be Powers of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of things I've picked up during the pandemic, and I'm like, oh, I can totally read that. I, I, I cannot read this during the pandemic. No, that's, <laughs> yeah, no. that's too bleak. Somebody at some point, I've got a, a list of books that have been recommended to me, and the next one on the list was one called Earth Abides. I was like, I have no idea what this book is about, so it was on my list. I opened it up, and in the first chapter, like 99% of the world's population dies from a disease. I'm like, nope. Uh, yeah. This <laughs> is uh, not good timing. Not. <laughs> I did that with a few RPG adventures. Like, oh, what shall I do with our group? There's a plague on. Nope. <laughs> so I tend not to talk about the kids' game that I was running uh, on saving the game, mostly because uh, they're all minors and they can't consent to me, you know, talking about the the game that we're all playing. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I will say the the storyline that I took them through literally the two weeks before we shut down was you have to save an entire village from the plague. Oh no! <laughs> um, they did. They did so, do it. So they failed. Um, then that's, that's what you're getting at. No, it's like this right now. Okay. In the game, the quest was to wear a mask, stay six feet away from others, and wash your hands. And the kids <laughs> did it, and they were safe. Yeah. Well done. Um, how they got yeah. that orcish horde to do the same was amazing. I mean, talk about some power rolls. <laughs> Honestly, I was mostly impressed because the way that they did it was uh, I, I sent them up a mountain to get a particular herb uh, that was guarded by a bunch of rocks. Rock as in ROC, like the really big bird. I'm surprised none of them got carried away by a rock, at least not for terribly too long. The wizard did get picked up and, and flown away for a little bit, but not, <laughs> not too long. He got free. It's fine. Cool. Thinking that could be that could be pretty terrible when somebody says, "Oh, the wizard's picked up by a large flying creature." No, wait a minute. I've seen Dragon Slayer. I know how we can solve this. Like, wait, wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been geeking out quite a bit about this uh, new virtual tabletop called Foundry. Somebody on the MinMax Slack uh, pointed it out to me. It's like, you know, World Twenty is it's good and it's powerful. It can do a lot of stuff, but it's really clunky in a lot of ways. And uh, to get some of the better uh, features in it, you have to pay monthly. So I wasn't real wild about spending any more money, but they had a, uh, a Black Friday sale. Got the thing for, I think, $36. It's normally $50. Oh, nice. Uh, and it's, it's a really slick interface. It's very, very good presence. 
uh, on your screen. It, it runs smoothly. Um, unfortunately, none of the games that I want to play have systems in it. So I'm also learning how to build systems and modules from scratch in the thing, which involves a lot of uh, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. I'm not real wild about JavaScript, but I can do it. So I have been digging into the guts of that and trying to reconstruct Tales from the Loop in Foundry. It's a lot of fun. Nice. Then I guess I'll go next. Uh, I have been playing Time Stories for, I think, about two years. Uh, Time Stories, if you, if you haven't heard of it, is a cooperative story-driven game where you buy a deck and what you do is you are given a mission, you're time agents, and you're going through time to uh, various locales to solve something that has gone wrong with the timeline. And you do this quantum leap style. So you you take your consciousness and you project it into a, a vessel, into a, a carrier that is there at the time that you want that you want to to make alterations. And you take basically that person's stat card. And in some of these games, you can jump in and out of different people that are there in the time period. And so it has some really cool puzzle solving and exploration and narrative elements. And uh, we have been building up to playing the, I guess you can call the series finale or the season finale, Madame. And Time Stories has had some absolutely wonderful things going for it because they have this subplot where there's there's uh, another kind of uh, another agency that is also using the same technology as you, and there's kind of this this building conflict, and even in spoilers uh, for the the previous uh, the uh, I guess the penultimate chapter, it can end with some endings of you having a bag over your head as you're abducted either by a faction in your own agency or by this alternate agency, the Scions. Interesting. Oh, that's so cool. But It is so cool. But can you answer me this? Does sure. Sa does Dr. Sam Beckett ever make it home? <laughs> you actually cross paths with Sam Beckett in the game. That's you do not. True. You should No, you do not. <laughs> no, it's a lie. It's a lie. No. <laughs> Because I was about to get on Amazon and order every single one of those. <laughs> well, speaking of ordering every single one of those, we'll get to that in just a second because we we did. Um, and they they have this wonderful thing where there's it looks like a side quest in each of almost all of the games where you find a cube and it looks like very otherworldly tech and very you know it's like this stands out this is special this is something and it tells you on the card hang on to it you might use it in another adventure and so you've just been collecting these for eight games and not really knowing why and there's also a couple of our players had uh had been infected with something in a previous chapter and it says you you are attracted to anything that is the color green I'm like, Aww. okay, Casual. this this is this is leading to something. Let's let's take all these subplots. Let's bring it to the finale. Let's open up Madame. We're gonna do this. And though you might have ended with a bag over your head, you just kind of go to work the next day. Huh. I'm like, okay. So there's no like, there's no alternate opening. Oh, okay, okay. This will make sense as we go through. I mean, the scions are gonna come into the. Where did the scions go? 
I mean, they might be responsible for this time home. But okay. 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 Moving on. Do you know what? That's fine. That's fine. You can't get a home run every time. Oh, all those cubes that we've been collecting are absolutely necessary to solve the final puzzle in Endgame. Oh, wait, you need actual physical copies of all of those on hand to make the end solvable? Oh, no. Okay, that's, that's fine. That's fine. We're going to do this. We've been slogging at this episode for the last six hours. We'll do it. We'll do it. And then we solve the final puzzle, and then we scan the QR code, and we enter the puzzle solution in, and the message we get is pretty much akin to be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to straight up give me an ad to the new series of time stories you're doing. Uh, okay. Oh. oh, gosh. So I'll say this. Time stories is an amazing set of adventures. Once you, once you, because it is very highly narrative, high puzzle solvy, high cooperation. It's fantastic. The art is brilliant. Uh, they have some that are hit and miss, but if you go play all the way through, through a very piratey one, uh, Brotherhood of the Coast, and once you finish Brotherhood of the Coast, write fanfic. That's my recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Time uh, Stories is always one of those games that Alan and I pick up on the shelf and we stare at it and we're like, someday, someday, we'll, <laughs> someday we'll own you. And then we always put it back. It's one of I've those done that ones, a few times. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of those ones where I also pick it up and look at it and I'm like, I really, really want to play this and no one else that I know in person wants to play this with me. <laughs> no. Oh. If it wasn't pandemic and it wasn't like, I don't know, like a two-day drive, I'd bring my copy. We could play. <laughs> someday we're bound to meet up at a con someday. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Well, we got a con planned at your church, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It was funny trying to explain that to the rest of the staff during our staff meeting, which was <laughs> the best part of my day, honestly. Because they're like, wow, we got a lot of traction on that one tweet. And I was like... Let me explain the internet to you. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, Ashley had made a post on her church and Gregory Oswald, who's a listener of, of Saving the Game and all the podcasts, uh, and, uh, all the podcasts, <laughs> yeah. all of us, we're, we're just kind of going back and forth like, oh, no, this is kind of the midpoint between us and this person and this person and this person. Let's just show up when the pandemic is over for their first potluck Sunday. It'll it'll be a podcast geeky con. This is going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> I will have never been more popular than when that day arrives. <laughs> people will be like, who did we hire? <laughs> well, you know, that's what they say is, is you want to find a property with a built-in fan base. So that's what they did. Yeah. <laughs> so that'll wrap it up for my geek out. All right, I will finish things off. Uh, this past month has been a really slow one geek-wise because it's been such a busy one life-wise. A lot of working from home. My kids' daycare got shut down for a couple of weeks, so they were home with us, and that was fun. <laughs> he says as his left eye won't stop twitching. Um, 
I love my family. Staying in a house with them all during the pandemic is wonderful. I recommend it to everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I told one person, yeah, yeah, having the kids at home is great. In fact, I'm going to start a new hobby. Oh, yeah, what? Drinking. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, beanbag toss or something like that, but with kids. <laughs> no, we had a that, moment. that would mean I'd have to you know, let them loose from the duct tape. Uh. Long form hide and seek. You go hide, and next week I'll come find you. That's right. (laughs) I just hear voices from the backyard. Dad, we're ready. I'm on the couch with my Xbox controller. You're doing great, kids. Be there in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I have had a chance to do a few things. I was able to wrap up watching both uh, The Mandalorian and Discovery, uh, both of which were thankfully fantastic. Uh, The highlight for me was... And I talked about this a couple of times, how the character of Ahsoka Tano was rumored to make an appearance on The Mandalorian. And she did, played by Rosario Dawson, who nailed it. It was a delight to see her on the screen. And the entire episode, that entire arc between her, The Mandalorian, and the child was was great. One of the best science fiction episodes, not just of Star Wars, but of anything that I've seen in a long time. And it got me thinking, did you guys hear about one of the guys behind The Mandalorian, uh, John Favreau, who was behind uh, The Mandalorian and some other great works happening there at Disney? Did you hear that he was in an accident? Oh, no. oh yeah. There's yeah. like a yeah. lot of spinal damage, hernia. Uh, yeah, discs ruptured, a whole lot of problems with his back, all because he's been carrying the Star Wars franchise for the last several months. <laughs> So let's give it up to that guy. Anyway, those shows have been wonderful. Um, I have finally had a chance to sit down with my wife and play a board game. Uh, Upon Mike's recommendation, she had bought for me uh, a few months back for our anniversary the game Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Oh, so good. Which was very fun. My only problem with it was that she brought it out to play just after we had had a big holiday dinner. <laughs> so I'm we just finished clearing the table. I'm sitting there feeling like a bear that's been shot in the butt with a tranquilizer dart. I'm <laughs> I'm ready for maybe a little more pie and a hibernation. And she just brings out the box, boom, puts it on the table. Let's play. She wiped uh, the walls with you, didn't she? Okay. <laughs> She did win. She absolutely did win. But I'm not going to lay the blame to that on my inability to think or move. Uh, she's just a fantastic player in her own right. So I mean, she's sharp. So Yeah. But even though I, I was ready uh, for a good 40, 80, three-month sleep, it was a lot of fun to play. And I'm slowly making my way through my game closet. Actually taking the plastic off of a game and playing it is always cause for celebration. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, uh, my weekly role-playing game group, uh, which I had been playing Tales from the Loop with, we wrapped up that campaign, and people were discussing what they wanted to play next. And lo and behold, our GM said, well, how about a Middle-Earth role-playing game campaign using the old (laughs) MERP system from ICE? To which I replied, yes, yes, you have my sword, my bow, and my axe. (laughs) Well, granted, this came after a... Very poor attempt at primetime adventures that just did not work. <laughs> Nobody knew that, Brian. I wasn't going to mention that. <laughs> anyway, I haven't had a chance to play Merps in over 20 years. Not since the last campaign that Brian actually ran for myself, my wife, and a few others. And I got a chance to 
pull out. That was before you were married, too. It was. I actually have copies of the old Middle Earth role-playing game, uh, second edition rulebook, the treasures of Middle Earth, and being able to use these resources again after so long is just been a pleasure. Right now, it's myself and two other players, and as I was thinking about, like, ooh, what character am I going to make? Uh, a ranger? Uh, ooh, no, a, a horseman from Rohan. I asked, uh, guys, what are you playing? They both said, dwarves. <laughs> All right, I'm a dwarf too now. <laughs> So I don't know if we've decided that we're actually going to be all three Dwarven brothers, which I actually think would be kind of a kick. But uh, just creating a character again has been geeky fun in and of itself. It's going to be a very short game. I don't know how long it will last. Yeah, but it'll be I, think short. We're, I think we're all going to die quick, too. So, No, I just meant because you're not very tall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but we're very dangerous over short distances. <laughs> And that is going to wrap it up for me, and I think that that will wrap it up for Geek Out. We will head on to our main topic, and uh, Ashley and Jenny have joined us today because we are going to be having a discussion on transhumanism, what it is, what are its uh, moral, ethical, and spiritual implications, some examples in media, and also the most important question, is Mike actually the Quitsats Haderach? <laughs> And, uh, I'm going to go we, solid no on that one. <laughs> we invited Jenny and Ashley on because not many people know this, but they're actually both cyborgs. So you're going to yep. get a, a firsthand perspective on this. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's why recording so easy. I just plug myself into the computer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so at any point, friends, while you're listening to this podcast, if you start to hear in a digitized voice say resistance is futile, don't worry about it. It's all fine. It's all fine. No, nothing to worry about. It's all good. Your technological and theological distinctiveness will be added to our own. <laughs> so, first off, for those who are unfamiliar with the subject, what is transhumanism? Uh, well, I guess I was the one who uh, pitched this idea, so I'll, I'll start us off. Um, the, transhumanism is, is kind of a nebulous thing. It's a philosophy. It's a, a movement. Uh, and it's generally the belief that humankind can exceed our natural physical and mental limitations uh, through the use of technology. We're talking about things like bionics, uh, brain machine interfaces, artificial intelligence, gene therapy, biotech, other even weirder advances. Um, and these things have the potentially to have the blah, blah, blah. Brian can speak. He needs a cybernetic tongue. <laughs> <laughs> these things have the potential to change uh, what it means to be human, to modify our definition of the species. Um, and we wanted to cover this in a, a couple of different angles. First, as a, a narrative device in science fiction, because as you know, we're all geeks and we read a lot and we watch a lot of movies and TV. So does anybody want to uh, to dig into that first? Uh, I wouldn't. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, please go ahead. It's your podcast. Like, all right. Um, <laughs> like, you were our guest. We wanted you to feel at home and no, welcome. That's the most kindness he's gotten on this podcast in forever. He's just not used to it. <laughs> yeah. I, I felt that short circuit for a second. <laughs> we're exploring this to some degree through the lens of science fiction because it's it's present there. It's an easy touch point for us. And we see transhumanism as a narrative device in science fiction because sci-fi is such a fertile ground for just exploring ideas, period. We, we have a suspension of our disbelief and we have a desire to accept a world within a certain set of parameters. 
Uh, for example, uh, Altered Carbon, which I don't necessarily recommend, but uh, it's popular, it's out there. We don't know how the cortical stack in, uh, in the back of their necks works. All that we know is that it stores a person's memories and backs up their consciousness, and it easily allows us to transfer a person from body to body. Um, I say that uh, uh, altered carbon might not be for everyone, just content warning. So, you know, it, it's uh, our show is family friendly. Altered carbon is not. So heads up if you go that route. Also, another example of, of the the narrative device would be in the book Scythe and its series that there's a lot in Scythe that we take for granted. The medical technologies advance far enough to keep everyone alive, well, and young effectively forever. And they can even bring somebody back from death, assuming a few of your cells survive. They can reconstruct your body and then download your consciousness back from the thunderhead. And there you go. You're, you're back to normal. We don't need to know how all those things work. We just accept it because that's the way our suspension of disbelief works. I think it's also important to note that this is sort of, especially where... Uh, uh, a realm where sci-fi moves, especially from science fiction to speculative fiction, because I think mm -hmm. right now we're sort of on the cusp of a really interesting moment where we can see some of these technologies about to actually happen in real life, which I think is, is super cool. Um, and we can see a, a point where if you lose an arm, you might be able to get another one. Um, and that might just not be a problem for you anymore. It lets us imagine these worlds where we don't have to face problems that we deal with on, on a daily, regular basis. Like having a consciousness stuck in one body, um, we could like control our feelings. We could physically move faster and, and not hurt ourselves. Um, it could get rid of illness um, I hope I kind of hope it doesn't get rid of death. Not gonna lie, it's <laughs> yeah. not to be all like goth here, but no, I'm... I'm one of those those folks who's like death is definitely a part of life. We should maybe keep that in there. Yeah, I I agree with you, Jenny. I think the <laughs> most most of my notes, and I'm, this will shock nobody who's listened to Mid Max, but most of my notes <laughs> are primarily um, in the theological and philosophical realm. Um, and the thing I was gonna say earlier before. I let Mike take the floor um, was that transhumanism ultimately is uh, like a subset of humanism. It's, it's, it's built off of Julian Huxley's essay from 1957 about this idea that not only can humans advance with the use of technology, but that they should, um, that that is what humanity is built for, that we have the technology. Therefore we should apply it to our own lives to be able to um, not only become better, but also it's, um, if you take the the guy who created what is it called Humanity Plus or Human Plus? Mm -hmm. uh, Humanity Foster, Plus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David Pierce. He basically argues for transhumanism um, as being committed to three supers: super longevity, super intelligence, and super well-being. And that can sometimes get confused with like futurism or posthumanism, which we can get into that if we want to. Mm -hmm. um, but it can get really interesting and, and a little bit messy when, with regard to narrative and speculative fiction, because then you have to 
kind of be assessing what the author's perspective on those terms are. And sometimes people mislabel their own fiction um, <laughs> based off of, of how, basically uh, based on how optimistic or, or um, cynical they are about the topic, which can then get into some really interesting theological territory as, as far as like what Jenny said, you know, how, how comfortable are we about the idea of super longevity or, you know, trying to dodge death? Some people would view it as a progression of what man has been doing all along. I mean, we've used our intelligence and technology to better the world around us. And so it's no large leap of logic to think that we want to use those to start bettering ourselves as well as much as possible. Yeah, I think where I tend to get really sort of admittedly Ron Swanson-y about the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> I love know. that you use that. <laughs> <laughs> is, um, is honestly when, when it starts to take the tact of not just um, bettering humanity or bettering the world and, and supporting people that need it, but becoming something other than human um, and trying to go well above and beyond the scope of of humanity itself and that can be a larger discussion for sure That's and right. i and i yeah. you know i don't want to drag my heels on something that will be for for the benefit of of people That's right um designer genes and eugenics are not a part of the swanson pyramid of manliness yeah <laughs> exactly i'm glad that you brought that up but i i think when when i look at it and it's it's kind of at its like least self-reflective Sometimes it can become, it can change from, you know, like Psalm 139, the whole, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made to I praise me for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And mm. that's where I start to get honestly, just like very sort of guarded ab about it. So that's why like when I'm reading sort of like speculative fiction stuff, I'm, I'm looking at what they're sort of having a discussion on and how they think it will serve or become a detriment to humanity. That's the kind of thing I'm always interested in when I look at this kind of narrative. Yeah, for right. me, it's always, I, I when I am reading or, or consuming a, a piece of, of media that deals with transhumanism in every way, the thing that pushes me into the, what I call call the gitchy feeling realm <laughs> yeah um or the squeaky feeling realm is where it feels like enhancement is required to participate in society mm -hmm. um yeah that's where where consent is removed from the equation and in like um one of my favorite uh, YA series to read is the Uglies series by Scott Westerfeld. This isn't exactly, it pushes a little bit into transhumanism. Um, not, not so much in the technology sense, um, but uh, like technology applied to the human body, more like technology applied to society where at the age of 16, everybody um, becomes pretty as in they go into a massive, like, medical procedure to get their features enhanced to be quote like the best versions of themselves that they can possibly be because some scientists had the great idea of oh well uh it's it's you know scientifically proven that quote pretty people are you know put at an advantage above everybody else so everybody should have that same advantage and so you're basically required to undergo this this process at 16 and it's like but but consent is important yeah and it, yeah. it just it 
oh, it, it, it's, it squicks me out. Not so much that I stopped reading it. It was like literally my favorite series, but that's where I think I, I get pushed into like, eh, maybe this isn't such a, a, a good idea. I also have concerns about like, what if it creates basically a class divide? So basically if you're rich, you can afford these enhancements to make your life better. But if you're poor, you're dirt. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and and you don't get the cool bionic legs that make you run super fast or whatever. Yeah, that's that's where my feelings are on it for the most part. That's one of my fears for the future is that when the day comes that we actually have all the technology that we've dreamed about and read about in comic books, I'm not going to be able to afford any of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, well, it's funny because transhumanism actually has a, a history with libertarianism, which is entirely focused on personal liberty and, you know, yourself being a, a prime, of primary personal value. Um, and so then taken at its sort of worst, that's exactly what it could become. So that's why mm -hmm. I, I think I'm always wanting to be as careful as I am. Yeah. And especially when we have these enhancements or advancements as as regulations for medical problems or mm -hmm. problems with our biology is that once you have the technology and it is implemented and it is safe and it is effective, again, who is it that gets it? Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the problems where the some of the concerns and problems with transhumanism simply throws a spotlight on problems that are already there, mm -hmm. that yeah. I am I am statistically more likely to get care for my problems than someone of a different demographic for a host of reasons. And once we start looking at these these social and economic divides, this this really this this starts to squick me out as as you said when we're like okay, so we can we can get not designer genetics, but okay, people of this class can afford to have the genetic possibilities of of a genetic uh, inheritable cancer. Wow, I'm forgetting the proper words. Um, <laughs> you can have edit out your genetic probability of, of getting cancer. And somebody who is not of that class cannot. Or is it covered by insurance? Yes, no, probably no. All right, it's no. Um, so who gets it and who doesn't? And it, yeah, we have the, advan the advanced and enhanced class and those who, who are unenhanced. Yeah. Or worse, we wind up in a situation where we've got mandatory enhancement to fulfill a need in society, mm -hmm. where the underclass is being forced to undergo some some kind of, okay, well, we need people who can lift a lot, so these guys get muscle enhancements. No, you don't get a choice. you got to get this because we need people who can lift the stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, if we've got a, a situation in which we, we've got this class divide widening, those people in the underclass don't have the power the social power to say no anymore i think there's also something at least to me that that can get a little gitchy feeling squicky um <laughs> where you are using something that is intended for a very specific medical purpose for fun or for something <laughs> that it, it it shouldn't be used for i get Oh my goodness. I get so many people so mad at me at work when they take out the one book we have on the keto diet. The keto diet was intended oh as a very specific medical diet for kids with severe epilepsy for whom medicine did not work. Yep. Inducing mm. ketosis prevents a very specific type of seizure 
in a very specific type of epilepsy and people are starting to use it to lose weight mm-hmm. and it's like but no though i'm sorry ketosis isn't is meant to make you feel terrible it really mm, is yeah. ketosis is very dangerous an awful thing to have to go through why are you putting yourself through so much for basically a trend mm-hmm. that could be done with just a simple low carb diet. You can, there are so many low carb diets you can go on if you think that dieting is a thing you want to do to yourself. Like, <laughs> dang, <laughs> you don't have to go all keto because it's like you don't have to put yourself through ketosis. Let's face it, though, it's not the first time people have physically put themselves in danger because of a trend, and it won't be the last. Oh yeah. yeah at least we're not head sculpting anymore, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that this is also throwing a bit of a spotlight on where where the blurry lines are between correction and enhancement. Mm-hmm. Like what what is a a feature that has some negative effects and what is what is a bug? One of the things we talk about in our ethics classes is okay, if we could find genetics genetic tags to fix X, Y, or Z, who would who would be willing to to take that uh, responsibility? And then I guess the question is not just the responsibility for you, but for your children. I mean, you're you're doing it for someone else who cannot consent. Yeah. Get. Um, and so, okay, so we have uh, you have the cancer gene. Should we edit that out? Like the entire class, almost the entire class. Like, yep, we're going to edit that out. Like, okay, um, you know, blindness. Like, yep, totally, we're going to do that. Like, well, what about the the genetic tags for uh, that causes someone to be a, a short person? Like, there's, you know, if they're under four foot 11, there's usually spinal issues that are involved. There are genetic tags for, I, I don't like the term dwarfism. Uh, what is used for that nowadays? Um, I don't know. Um, Maybe I should have looked that up before the show. Um, <laughs> but you know, what about what about those? I'm like, uh, I mean, yeah, okay. They're shorter lifespans generally, and back problems. Sure. I'm like, okay. How about baldness? Well, no. Like ADD. Uh, maybe I'd edit. You know, at that point, you know, when you have something that's labeled a disorder, at what point would you would you want to edit my ADD? I mean, James, I know you want to edit my ADD a lot. That's fine. That's normal. We do this, but. Me and Kaja have you on medication. We'll tell you about it later. <laughs> and it's, I, when I was younger, I went down that meds route. Um, yeah. And they adjusted because I was a kid. I didn't know better. They adjusted my meds wrong. I mean, and that had effects. Um, oh, yeah. like, I'm on ADD meds now, today, right now, immediately. And like adjusting them wrong literally almost made me starve myself because i was literally Mm -hmm. losing about a pound a day that was just earlier this year i'm finally i'm finally back at my goal weight i'm so Mm -hmm. happy but like let's not pretend that like changing something core to yourself will not have knock-on effects because Mm -hmm. it absolutely will Uh and some of these disorders are also culturally based Mm -hmm. right Uh, there were things that that are seen to cause suffering in in Western society that in other cultures are just a feature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine who was a social worker had said that he had he had read an article that in in certain cultures no one suffers from uh, from 
uh, schizophrenia. Uh, it's a feature, like it is a part of their brain that there that there are voices that yes they hear this, but this does not affect their quality of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in our highly individualistic mindset, where no, there's something in my brain, I'm hearing voices in my head. There's far more negative feelings attached to these experiences. So if we're thinking in a broader scale of what is a problem that needs to be fixed with humanity, it raises a lot more questions than than we're used to than we're used to grappling with. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And I think that's like primarily what I'm concerned about is its use for making human inter- interaction just more convenient for us, which I think I could see happening in the West relatively easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which would then just further limit the time that we take to consider other people at all. And that's hard for us to do already. <laughs> yeah. So something that concerns me and about the idea of what is culturally acceptable or what we all agree on is a, as a necessity, as far as changes to be made to a person's genetic code. Like Mike, you said your class all raised their hands when it came to uh, cancer and blindness and that's because they all were aware of it and all accepted it. Yeah, those are problems that need to be corrected. Well, what happens when everyone's taught that blue eyes are a problem that need to be corrected or or brown hair? Or... I have an even a better idea. Why don't you walk up to somebody who's blind from birth and tell them that that's a problem that needs to be corrected? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And in this case, then the individual person's rights go out the door because everyone has agreed, yep, that needs to be changed. Oh, don't I get to say no, no, because we all say that this is wrong and this is the way you should be. And so that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, is... a creeping line there because, well, today it's cancer and it's born blind. Next week, it's something else. Yeah. And we, we keep narrowing and narrowing the definition of who's human. And then when somebody is well outside that norm, how do we treat them? Yeah. And by mm-hmm. even go ahead and saying that, oh, we need to take out the cancer gene or we need to add this one, the precedence is set. Mm-hmm. And once it's set, it can be changed, it can be modified, and it can be described in any way so that changes can be made at any point down the road. It's a very slippery slope. And, I mean, I don't want to label something as bad because there there is a potential slippery slope. This slippery slope is one of those things where you have to say that A leads to B and mm-hmm. B is necessarily a bad place to be. So we we do really have to examine this slope mm-hmm. uh, and and check for where we are along the way, where we want to go along the way. And you know, and it takes a lot of critical evaluation. Basically, you don't want to throw the baby out with the yeah. bathwater. Agreed. That wigs you. I completely agree with that. And I say that it's a slippery slope, all while saying that if someone said, hey, I could, with a few procedures, we could eliminate the cancer gene in your family, I would absolutely do it because cancer has hit my family hard and I've lost yeah. family members yeah. to it. So the question is, and this is a question we all might have to address one day in the future. Once that door is open, is there a way to regulate it? Well, and I think that's why we we look at the science fiction, because mm-hmm. it lets us ask these questions and it gives us a safe place to explore the potential consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm never a fan of like, there's, in the last couple of years, I have noticed a recent trend within writing and literary communities where it's like, oh, we can't write about this because such and such a thing is bad. Mm. Well, 
can there not be bad things in stories? <laughs> can I we not, you know, we play around? Yeah, exactly. Can we not play around with these ideas and and look at at these potential slippery slopes? We should <laughs> look at point A and see if point A leads to B. Then what would point C look like, or point D even? That's how we can um, ask ourselves the what ifs and what if this were to happen in real life, and gives us ideas and pushes our imagination on how to deal with them yeah how exactly. to avoid no, it if it's like, something to be avoided mm -hmm. yeah not that we shouldn't like look at these things sensitively we should absolutely look at these things with sensitivity um but i don't think we should shy away from any topic especially because the the more we look at, at human society as a whole we look at stories to analyze our existence and we look at hmm. stories to learn we learn from stories better than we do a lot of the time from pretty much anything else and that's mm -hmm. across most cultures it's why we have mythology it's why we tell kids about uh the the lake monster that'll eat you up if you go too close to the water you know mm -hmm. so uh yeah yeah and i think sh actually bringing up stories and learning from stories in when i was pondering all these questions in the outline that you provided for us for this episode i realized i, I had to put myself like on a, a sliding scale with my um, opinions about transhumanism <laughs> based off of narratives that i've consumed that use like trans transhumanist narrative or theme so like at my most cynical, I'm a Bioshock, but at my most, <laughs> <laughs> but at like my most optimistic or most hopeful, I'm a Hippolyta Berry from Lovecraft Country. Um, oh yeah. Like I don't know if you guys are familiar or have watched or even like read the book because the the book is they've definitely changed a lot from the book to the to the show. Yeah, I've um, watched most of the show. Have not read any of the book. Okay. Um, I really like what they did with Hippolyta's character in the show. Oh, she's they, fantastic. yeah, she's she's. I mean, arguably my favorite character, um, and she has an episode where it's probably the most like Afrofuturistic episode in the entire run of the series so far. Oh yeah, that um, is straight Afrofuturism. Yeah, it goes. Beautiful. It goes from like surreal horror right into afrofuturism like it, exactly and i think i think it gives a really good example of how transhumanism could actually be like a really positive uplifting thing especially specifically in that um the end of that episode you know she's she's given mm -hmm. the option to stay as she's become throughout the, all this technology that's been offered to her or go back to her daughter and it's a real choice for her um, but she mm -hmm. says this line that made me cry and I'm probably going to misquote it, but it, it's something to the effect of like, how can I, how can I fit all of me back in there when I'm all of this? And she kind of like does like a space tumble is the best way I can describe it. <laughs> um, but it's so beautiful because she's, she had been given throughout the episode, this opportunity to do all of these things and become this person that she'd hoped to be before she became a mother. And once she was given the choice, and I think this brings in the consent angle that um, Jenny um, was really wise to bring in she chose to in the at the end of that entire journey to name herself mother in the end to her daughter and it, mm. it like it just made me i was just weeping um, oh yeah because same was, here like, i was just yeah. like i was so glad that my parents were were not in the house for that because i was a mess <laughs> a draping <laughs> mess <laughs> that's exactly it yeah and and so i think it i was i was really grateful for that episode because it it put technology in a really beautiful light as opposed to like a really sanitary light um mm -hmm. and and you know 
use it as an object for growth as opposed to stunting, um, but in a way that was very healthy and organic as opposed to something that was, um, you know, overly engineered in, in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of the spectrum I'm on when it comes to this topic. <laughs> now I'm trying to put myself on like a sliding scale of like where I'm at. Yeah. It's, it, I know personally for me, like, I think my tastes, my tastes in media tend to lean more towards like physical bionics, like, mm-hmm. like the actual mechanical arms and stuff like that. Um, and maybe it's because I, I live in a very sciencey town. My dad is a nuclear chemist and that we are very much into sort of engineering type things in our in our actual lives so so that's more where i'm at yeah. who among us wouldn't say absolutely yes if someone dropped an iron man suit right in our lap <laughs> <laughs> hmm. i actually might say well, no personally <laughs> me i might say no i do want very fast legs <laughs> well cool and then we're you, actually you get the bottom half and i'll take the top half <laughs> <laughs> we'll just share. We're actually in a world now where the a prosthetic leg can be superior to the natural legs. We got the mm-hmm. the Olympic Committee is still debating about those those the, blade the blades. Yes. Oh yeah. Because yeah. the gentlemen who were using them were clocking in times not like a huge portion, but significantly faster than men and women running around on their own legs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, that partially solved itself because. Oscar Pistorius was a horrible person and murdered somebody, but <laughs> the fact remains that they're they're having to discuss whether or not somebody with a air quotes disability now has an actual advantage uh, in yeah. races. Well, it's one of those things that there's uh, there's a lot of conversations that happen around around where I live because MIT is literally all around me. And there was a professor at MIT who had a prosthesis and he had the opportunity to invent other prostheses. And he's like, well, this is the prosthesis that I use for walking. This is the one that I use for mountain climbing. This is the one that I use for, I mean, just switching them out Mm -hmm. because he's in a position where he can have the best tool for the job. And sometimes that's a better tool than what he had. Now, granted, this is somebody who is in very much the minority. And he's not said, oh, I'm so happy I've lost my leg. (laughs) But as we're looking forward to what can we do? I've got to admit that as a sufferer of gout, there have been a few moments when I thought, if I just cut these off, this pain will go away. Mm. (laughs) Well, like, maybe Mike can uh, introduce realized... you to his friend who's got the mountain climbing. And <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of worried that phantom limb pain might be even worse, so I'm not going to go <laughs> that route. But it's crossed my mind from time to time. <laughs> yeah. Man, we've just been jumping all over this outline here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> Should we move on to popular culture, or do we want to spend any more time on narrative device and where we would personally stand on the idea of transhumanism and making changes to ourselves and others around us. I'm cool with moving on to pop culture. That's part of why I brought up Bioshock and Lovecraft Country, because I was trying to 
help trying to steer transition. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I don't. Okay. I don't want to speak for everybody though. <laughs> no, I think that's a good voice. That's a good voice. We're going to listen to that voice. <laughs> Hope. Speaking of Lovecraft, bleh, James talking. Take two. Well, speaking of Lovecraft, Lovecraft, <laughs> you guys are just. <laughs> <laughs> Edit none of this. Edit none of it. <laughs> Say it with an accent now. It might be easier. Well, <laughs> well. Speaking of Lovecraft country, see, yeah, that sounds bad. Um, <laughs> well, speaking of Lovecraft country and Bioshock, let's take a look at transhumanism in various popular culture. The one that stands out to me first and foremost is Star Trek. And this surprises nobody on this podcast. <laughs> Not a single one of you. Um, of course, we talked about the Wrath of Khan when we were talking with the Retro Rewind guys. And in the original series, it, it introduced us to the eugenics wars, genetically engineered superhumans, and what effect that they had on the Earth. Their existence and their actions led to the Third World War. And the worst among them was, of course, Khan Noonien Sung, who we were discussing before the show. Played by Ricardo Montalban, he's just fabulous. That would be Singh. Yes. Oh, Sung so was the guy who invented data. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Khan Noonien Singh. And it brought me to mind of a quote that was made in the show about the, the superhumans, that superior ability breeds superior ambition. And of course, that's true in the show. Singh and his fellow superhumans try to take over the Enterprise. Later, they tried to kill Captain Kirk and the Enterprise again in the movie. And by the time the next generation comes along, eugenics has been outlawed completely to the point that if you are found even dabbling with it at all, you are sent to a comfy, cozy Federation prison planet. They did explore that a little bit more in Deep Space Nine uh, with the character of Julian Bashir, who was, spoiler warning for a show that's like 25 years old now, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Bashir in later seasons was revealed actually actually to have been genetically enhanced. Yeah. Um, but if you recall, even though he didn't go to a prison planet, his father did. But that, that line about superior breed, uh, superior ability uh, didn't apply universally. Bashir was fully aware that he was smarter than everybody around him, but it didn't lead him to wanting to, well, most of the time it didn't lead him to be wanting to become a megalomaniacal warlord. There were a couple of moments. Yeah. But. I will uh, submit that once we did find out that uh, he was genetically altered, he did become just a touch more insufferable. <laughs> yes, well, that's true. <laughs> superior ability to breed superior smugness. Right. Uh, there's some other stuff in in Star Trek. Um, there was one particular storyline that the, the big bit with the Borg. Uh, they're a cautionary tale, but I was, as I was thinking about this this topic, I was thinking that there was a, a big missed opportunity that at some point when the Borg were being built the first time, somebody probably thought, hey, this is a great idea. Let's network our minds and we can communicate with one another instantaneously. And we can have this, this great instant communication with the entire species at once. And we didn't get to see the, the transition from that into the supervillains. And I think it would be a really interesting story to, to tell and to look at. And, you know, it makes me want to write a spec script <laughs> looking at that. But if I'm I'm thinking about this idea is like, okay, well, well, what would be the genesis of that? Where, 
what caused them to become this this horrible universe consuming force and it's twitter <laughs> i'm not even going to argue with you about that it's, <laughs> i buy it completely i mean yes on one hand we can say that the borg have have gone down a dark path but I think that that darkness speaks more to our own human condition than it does the dangers of how we meld that technology. Mm -hmm. um, because they are the perfect villain for a hyper-individualistic culture. Yeah. That they are a threat to the thing that we prize the most, which is me, mine, I, and my thoughts, my headspace, my individuality. And this is particularly horrific to our, to our culture because it threatens mm -hmm. something that we're not even aware of us prizing to the degree that we do. Mm -hmm. I think, and this isn't in the notes at all, it only just occurred to me, um, <laughs> Babylon 5 very briefly, and I wish that they had expanded on this a little more. Um, Babylon 5, uh, for those who don't know, it's uh, around the same time as... Uh, it came out around the same time as Deep Space Nine. If you're looking for something... You know what? You should watch Babylon 5 instead of Deep Space Nine. Um, but you know, just going to get that yeah. out of the way it, right, right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Bab 5 has been brought up on this podcast many times. Yeah, yeah. Babylon 5 is amazing. So... They briefly, very briefly mentioned, I think with, um, oh no, what's her name? Talia, I think? Talia Winters. Um, yeah, Talia Winters. What it is like for somebody who can essentially mind meld with another person to be in an intimate relationship with another person who can mind meld with people. Uh, um, um, Cy, Cyonic? Cy, Cycor? Not Cycor. Cycor is the, the, the big bads. But it, it's described as the loss of individuality not necessarily being a bad thing. And when you are in a, an intimate relationship with somebody who can share your your mind, you basically become this one beautiful infinity. And I think that's a fascinating way to look at it a, that so, sort of goes the complete opposite direction of the Borg, where in instead of, oh no, the loss of individuality, uh, it's more the gain of infinity which I think is such a, a, a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah. I think that's a very, very cool way to look at it. Though, Brian, I think you are onto something with the Borg originating with Twitter, because when you think about it, every time they communicate with the Enterprise, it's always under 280 characters. <laughs> so there you go. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm not saying it's true, but we all might want to be careful. Start deleting some apps. <laughs> well, uh, Babylon 5 covered a lot of transhumanist ground. Yes, it did. Um, mm -hmm. Technologically and also spiritually uh, with the the, uh, the Psychor, the telepath plot lines. Telepath, um, thank you. Thank you, yeah, you're telepath. Welcome. The Jason Ironheart, which was a terrible episode. Oh, that was so bad. But uh, that notion of transcendence where... It's implied that uh, at the end, John Sheridan transcended and became something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there was the, the Deathwalker storyline. I was just about to bring up Deathwalker, yeah. The consequences of immortality. Uh, well, I liked it that they showed that it wasn't just humans 
that were thinking of trans. Well, I guess this would be trans Dilgar because that's the species that Deathwalker belonged to. But the, the idea of improving self or improving others through technological and genetic means isn't an idea that is thought of only by the human race. I guess the Vorlons have been doing it for mm-hmm. thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. There's one aspect of the Star Trek uh, transhumanism that we kind of have in our notes, if I could dial back a little bit to that, uh, in Lieutenant Commander Data, mm-hmm. because yes. there is so much there, especially as he is exploring what it means to be him. And we as viewers are exploring what it means to have sentient artificial life that is functioning like a human being but who is not a human being. And this is one of the questions that we get into with transhumanism is what is an electronic consciousness? When is something sentient? And when does something deserve to be treated as a life form? And what sort of rights and, and ethics come into play with that? Especially as we are kind of working in the direction of merging the biological and technological. And it kind of approaches this from another end, but transhumanism does try to explore the idea of what happens if we can upload a consciousness or can we put a functioning human mind into a machine? And this starts with the, we have a functioning mind that we have created in the, in the artificial intelligence. And there is a lot of exploration as to what does it mean for for data to be a sentient being, uh, especially in in the episode "The Measure of a Man," mm-hmm. and the, we kind the of best TNG episode in in my, oh my humble opinion. It's fantastic. It still holds uh, up so well. Yeah. I don't know inner I... light, <laughs> but that's beside the point. That's not transhuman. <laughs> I mean, and it it tackles some of these questions that we've been dealing with since the enlightenment with, mm-hmm. well, is data a person and what is a person and how do we establish what personhood is? And one of the things that's kind of brilliant in that episode is, is Jean-Luc Picard has, has said, I can't deal with that philosophically. <laughs> I, <laughs> I cannot determine what a human is or what a person is. Is it's spoiler alert to anybody who's never really gone down this path. It's a lot stickier than you think it is. <laughs> yeah. We might be covering that a little bit later in the show. <laughs> Depends on, on on how we work through this. But uh, Picard decides that, that that can't be the issue. That instead what becomes the issue is that of slavery. Because we're talking about creating a mind for the purposes of doing something for us that we intend it to do. And I thought that was a fascinating a fascinating angle to approach this problem. Because there there is the the very difficult problem of what is a human and we might not solve this in this court case Mm -hmm. i think if if you guys don't mind me jumping in here with uh my main addition to the the media topic um the murder bot diaries is a, a a book series that i absolutely adore and it is all about this kind of thing but in a very very humorous style of writing like so so if if you're looking to to explore this idea more uh but you don't want to get super like heavy ethics textbook kind of thing with it <laughs> the murderbot diaries by martha wells is a very good way to go but it's a story written from the point of view of a a security unit uh which in in this universe is 
mostly robotic with a little bit of human brain and, and some human flesh bits in there uh, and 100% vessel for depression and anxiety uh, who and, <laughs> right. and this particular security unit or sec unit has turned off a part of their brain that would force it to take like to follow out all orders so it basically gave itself a conscience because it was having to deal because it was having to deal with its own very complex ethics questions and so it just turned off the thing that you know was getting in the way hmm. um it's a, a an excellent series for looking at um what is human and what is appropriate in terms or not not appropriate exactly but where in the future are we going to draw the line between you know making robots and exploiting robots um and the exploitation of of a a labor force that can't say no kind of thing yeah i i, I love the murderbot diaries for that and i i adore the humor that it sort of takes with these in the end like really these are the kinds of questions that do actually literally keep me up at night <laughs> <laughs> so i'm glad it can look at them with some kind of humor mm -hmm. and they're very short they're all novella length they're all about 140 to 170 pages or so um bite-sized little things adding it to the amazon list <laughs> do we <laughs> Every time we have an episode of Geek at Arms, that list gets longer and longer. Yeah. <laughs> the finish just line keeps moving further away. And then the librarian comes on and, and, and our other guest, and suddenly it gets even longer still. <laughs> Please tell me that's what the title of this episode is going to be. The librarian and the other guest. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, it is now. <laughs> Someone has put Gattaca in the notes. Does anybody want to jump on that one? I feel like we kind of already covered Gattaca with the gene editing thing at the yeah. beginning. It's yeah. There was a lot that we were that. discussing, which was straight out of Gattaca. Okay. Yeah. All right. You're, oh. All that Just was missing was Uma about... Thurman making a guest appearance. <laughs> rewind about 40 minutes and say Gattaca, and then that's, that's where that goes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's one bit of transhumanist science fiction uh binti by nettie akorafor that oh, yes. is oh it is fantastic i have yet to finish it and i feel like a, a bad person for it because that was one of the books that i bought for the library can you hear the quotation marks but really i've always suspected that librarians abuse their position in that way and i completely okay. agree with it very minor <laughs> abuse i give myself one book per like business quarter so that's four books a year that that are mine but <laughs> live at the library <laughs> yeah but that's also educated curating so... and, and that's a really lovely term to to give that she's gonna, gonna pick gonna a poster that. with that <laughs> and that's how i'm gonna argue my positions to uh to the board later in the year like that wasn't personal that wasn't self-serving that was educational curation of a library system <laughs> binti is is fantastic on a number of levels first of all because it's it's african futurism where we we have the foundation of the science fiction not from a western perspective but from a specifically nigerian-centric perspective mm -hmm. 
And that Nigerian centrism drives the not only the entire narrative, but it is there as a part of the main character's uh, thought processes. And as a part of that, I mean, she's undergoing trauma. She's changing as a person uh, physically, mentally. And as she is kind of feeling out this person she is becoming as she is changed. And some of that is not within her own control. Like she, in some aspects, wakes up changed. And she's still fundamentally focused on these questions of culture. That part of her journey is who she is as a person of her culture, and as she re-enters her culture, it goes back to her family, it becomes especially important because she is changed and a person of this family and a person of, of this upbringing and a person of this tribe. And so I think that's, it's a fascinating book because it explores something that is so fundamentally human in respect to to transhumanism, that no matter what around her change, she still clings to these parts of who she is and her tradition. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much, I, I can't remember how much it gets into uh, the transhumanism side of things. Definitely gets into like technology affecting the, the average human day. But I would also recommend another uh, piece of fiction by Nnedi Okorafor that is a short story called Mother of Invention. Uh, I believe it's free to read. Uh, on the internet somewhere. I will get a link for it uh, to be put in the show notes later, but very, very good uh, African futurism kind of thing. Very good. And although I may catch hate from it from certain people on this podcast right now, I do want to make mention of Dune uh, by oh, Frank, Frank Herbert. <laughs> um, Dude, I told you not to do that when Ashley was on. Darn, geez. Did you? Oh, I forgot. No, I didn't. No, um, no I didn't. I didn't do that at all. No. Well, we do likes and dislikes aside or how many times it's taken all of us to try to get through the book, <laughs> um, myself included. Um but we do see several examples of how human beings have been altered to fit various needs in the series because this book takes place in a in a far future where um, advanced machines and computers have been outlawed. At some point in humanity's past, there was an AI uprising. And so those are completely done away with. But this is now... Well, computers were afraid people were going to take their jobs. Oh, that's right. There you go. <laughs> uh, but this is an interstellar human species. So uh, now we have altered humans in the form of mentats who can think faster than any computer can, do millions of calculations. Uh, we have the Bene Jesuit, who are a mess unto themselves. Um, and we have guild navigators. These are people who just, through genetic alteration... You know, think faster than computers. They can read thoughts and move objects through the vastness of space. In fact, even due to genetic engineering and uh, the application of certain herbs and spices, their uh, messianic figure comes about to be the Quitsats Haderach. Well, I think that's one thing that is really interesting about about Dune is that it doesn't focus on a lot of human alterations of the genetics like in, in terms of genetic engineering, it is all either eugenics in terms of breeding and it's really focused on drugs, which yeah. 
uh, which is something that we really should take a look at because while Dune is intended to be an, an exaggeration of of these of these ideas, it does it does introduce the idea of what do we do to change ourselves chemically, and what can we do to change ourselves chemically to achieve uh, achieve something more. I mean, and this might sound like I'm being, you know, being weird. Like, well, yeah, we all know drugs are bad. Kids don't do drugs. <laughs> but part of of where we are headed pharmacologically is trying to fix the aging bug. Mm. I mean, and that's, that is sci-fi, mm-hmm. but it's also a dinner conversation that I had. I mean, it's, uh, I was talking with somebody who's, whose master's thesis was about pharmacological opportunities to uh, to fix genetic errors and to stop the genetic errors that are tied to aging. So it's it's a thing that is being worked on mm-hmm. currently. So I, I think that uh, as much as Frank Herbert might have have some pretty wild conclusions, it's also it's also something that we need to look at in, yeah. in respect to this. And it's been something we've been thinking about for a long time. When we think about uh, the character of Captain America, he was a 80-pound weakling who suffered from a variety of medical issues and could be blown over by a gust of wind. Enter in the super soldier formula, and suddenly he's a 6'8 uh, super soldier who can punch Hitler in the face every weekend. Yeah, see, kids, performance-enhancing drugs are good for you. Yeah. <laughs> That, it's interesting as long because, as they're given to the pure of heart right. <laughs> right yeah it's it's really interesting because i did read an argument from an ethicist who who had raised the question well why do we ban performance enhancing drugs we we go to see competitions for superhuman people to do superhuman things well as long as it's within the limits of safety, why don't we let them? Why don't we let people be as superhuman for our entertainment as we'd like? Now, granted, there are some problems that need to be examined with this perspective. <laughs> but the reason why I raise it is it is a perspective that is out there. Yeah. yeah. I think it, with that specific perspective, it's are we watching sports for the purpose of um, not glorifying, but but showcasing you know, pure human ability, or is it more from the audience perspective of entertainment? What is our goal with this specific um, set of activities that we do? Um, I personally lean towards showcasing pure human ability side of things. uh, And maybe that's because that, maybe that comes from my rugby playing years. I, I, I don't know, but uh, I think it's, it's, yeah, like, do we play sports because it's fun to play sports, or do we play sports because it's fun to watch other people play sports? Oh, no, there's a question. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you. I think there's something really disembodied about thinking of our bodies solely as tools or forms of energy. Yeah. Like, they certainly can provide those things, but um, I think this is where sometimes transhumanism can get kind of gnostic in a lot of ways and i see this hmm. in Dune, and part of the reason why i think i struggle with it is and granted you know i'm appreciating it more than i had the other seven times i tried reading it but um, <laughs> because you see paul go from a society that is rather gnostic in their approach to human physicality to have to be a part of a community that is 
deeply um, acquainted with their physicality by virtue of them trying to survive every day. Um, and so then him becoming, you know, the savior of, of that community is kind of interesting. But um, one of my theology professors in seminary, she constantly, um, Dr. Cherith V. Nordling, she's incredible. But one thing that she constantly said to us is, you don't have a body, you are a body. Remember that. You don't just have this this flesh casing. You are this, um, and that's part of what makes you human. So I think that's what um, what often makes me sort of like stand back and question how we treat our bodies and how we're talking about them, especially you know in narrative. What does this suggest about my physicality? Are they suggesting this is a good thing to have or a bad thing to have? What is lacking according to this audience? And I and I think sometimes you know with regard to performing per performance enhancing drugs and such, then that kind of um, limits our capacity for, for awe and wonder with regard to what people can accomplish or achieve and um, doesn't allow for us to kind of be surprised in a lot of ways when people are, are born yeah. with just extreme abilities that we wouldn't have thought were possible. Mm -hmm. I have a, a counter uh, observation that, a lot of the, not universally, but many transhumanist uh, ideas are talking about the exaltation of the physical anatomy, that it's in a way kind of uh, anti-Gnostic, where they're saying, this is the body that we have, and we want to, want to make it the best that it absolutely can be. Now, there are certainly transhumanist currents of, we're going to discard the body, but those aren't those are likewise not universal. Sure. Yeah. I'm more speaking towards the, the Dune narrative that was brought mm -hmm. up with regard to like enhancing the brain and be, and, you know, becoming more of a supercomputer than one currently is. Right. Right. Sorry. I'm just, I'm racking my brains because I feel like there is a very specific piece of media and I've forgotten the title, but it deals with um, sort of, of humans as supercomputers um, and the idea that a modified human brain could run better than any sort of other computer. And it is bothering me that I cannot remember. <laughs> well, that sounds a little bit like, uh, McCaffrey, uh, the brain, the brain ships. Maybe this was the a ship who sang. Show. There was an episode of Star Trek Enterprise where the ship had been damaged. It found an alien automated repair facility. Uh, one of their crew went, they thought died, but they actually found out that he was kidnapped. And when they located him, he was in a room where to augment its computing power, this automated station had linked together all the brains of all of these different people. That sounds really cool. I think I'm thinking of a Doctor Who episode. And I want to say it would was make the one with Simon sense. Pegg in it. I think it was the one with Simon Pegg yes. in it, but I think I Yes, it was a space wrong. station. And it was yeah. with, um, oh, not David Tennant, but the uh, the person before David Tennant. Eccleston. Yes, Eccleston. Christopher Eccleston. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, I think that, that particular type of narrative also gets back into sort of like, um, I think what Ashley was, was talking about before with, with seeing the, the problems with seeing the body as a tool and not as you or at least part of you. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. You know, I feel like as, as much as I was like really drawing on that one specific image, I still feel like it's shown up a bajillion other times in other pieces of, of <laughs> media. Not not going to lie. I always love to see it because I love to tear it apart. <laughs> <laughs>
And we touched briefly a little earlier when discussing uh, transhumanism, uh, the narrative of it, and transhumanist, transhumanist ideas about the merging of mind and machine, a computer. And one of my favorite movies from the 80s, uh, the movie Tron. And of course, there was the sequel, Tron Legacy, that came out, which I also really enjoyed. Um, it shows a literal merging of a person and a computer mm-hmm. through through fantastic science fiction means. And then we see the, the more moral implications of it in the sequel, where uh, the character Flynn is trying to create the perfect system, but then his entire core values are changed when he encounters the characters of the ISOs, life forms that have just been kind of created by the code of the program he's running. And encountering them makes him challenge everything he's ever believed about because they really are kind of a combination of technology and biological, technological and the biological. And he sees that this could be the future of humanity. You know, he even phrases it as such a, a digital frontier to reshape the human condition. And we talked earlier about the idea of downloading one's memories or one's consciousness, uh, everything that makes up oneself into a computer and continuing life that way. It's, it's fun science fiction. It's brought up in Star Trek and in several other shows as well. But frankly, it's one that kind of scares me. <laughs> yeah. Why does it scare you, James? Well, there's a lot of things that scare me, Michael. Just add this to the list. It's up there with, you know, <laughs> sharks, needles, and snakes. But and if you want to get really scared, uh, I read the Rudy Rucker's Wear Tetralogy, which covers a lot of this ground. Um, mm-hmm. And the first human whose consciousness is uploaded, the robots decide, okay, well, we need a li- liaison between ourselves and the humans. So we're going to kidnap this human and take microscopic slices of his brain and scan them and reconstruct the brain in a robot, which of course is the size of like a huge truck because computers were not, this was written back in 79, 80 or something like that. Uh, so it's like, okay, yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. Just gonna remove his brain and slice it up and scan it. <laughs> Along those lines, uh, you know, one step between now and Tron and, sliced up brains um is is the idea of a of of virtual reality we're seeing virtual reality become more and more commonplace in people's houses with the oculus rift which not gonna lie ever since that latest star wars game came out i'm really kind of wanting one (laughs) uh you see virtual reality centers pop up in dave and busters and theme parks and uh brian in the last episode was talking about the anime uh, Sword Art Online, which, once again, it's fantasy, but you know, you could almost also see how that could be the next logical step in where the technology goes, and in which case the next step beyond that would be a true merging of man and machine. And I've got to admit, I'm first in line as, for a brain jack. <laughs> as, as much as Sword Art Online is a pretty good avenue to examine that kind of thing, uh, I, I have not watched it. But I'm going to take a hard stance right here. Gun Gale Online did a better job. Oh, Gun Gale um, Online was great. Oh, Gun Gale Online is fantastic. I refuse to watch Sword Art Online for many reasons. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. But I think I think I like Gun Gale Online better because it's literally an, a really famous Japanese author looking at Sword Art Online saying, wow, what a cool concept to explore this, this you know, 
interesting I- idea. You did a terrible job. I can do it better. Pay me to do it. Um, <laughs> because that's literally what Sword Art, on- Art Online is. And so um, I think, without again, without having seen uh, uh, Sword Art-, Art Online, Gun Gale Online does a fantastic job of taking some interesting ethical questions and taking a pretty... I think pretty positive stance toward some of the applications of virtual reality, such as um, severe body dysmorphia. Um, mm. the, the main character of of uh, Gun Gale Online, she is very tall, and she hates that about herself and thinks of her, her herself as a very short person. And so she goes through game after game after game trying to find one that will let her be very small. <laughs> <laughs> until she finds one that the, the setting doesn't really appeal to her at all but but it, it's a very dark sort of grim dark far sci-fi future where you, you have to shoot up a bunch of really scary aliens or whatever uh, but it lets her look the way that she thinks of herself as looking sorry for that terrible sentence construction there i'm not going to go back <laughs> and fix it um so i think that yeah, there are some really, uh, you know, s- squeaky implications with, you know, straight up downloading yourself into a computer. But I think um, it could also be used in certain therapeutic uh, contexts, like those, like for those who have severe body dysmorphia, you get to look, you get to look at yourself more physically the way that you want to be able to look at yourself. Well, it's interesting you should say that because in the Sword Art Online season that comes up right after Gun Gale Online, a character is introduced who, in the game, she's seen as extremely powerful. Everyone's wondering who she is. And the big reveal happens when it's discovered that she spends so much time in the game because she's actually suffering from... Brian, you may have to help me with this. I don't know if they're specific in what disease she's suffering from, if it's cancer or something uh, else. Said, and now I don't remember what it was. But basically, she's 100% bedridden, mm. months to live. Uh, when she is awake, uh, she has Oh, to she had up. AIDS. She had AIDS. Okay. She yeah, was, she was oh, in terminal, terminal stages of AIDS. Mm-hmm. So a lot of pain. And they basically hooked up one of those neurospheres. I don't know what they're called. They let her be in the game almost 20 plus hours a day because in there she can have something resembling a life. And it blocks her pain receptors. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I, I appreciated about Gun Gale Online specifically was that in at the end of the story, there was a synthesis of the, the character that Len at some point stopped seeing herself, stopped seeing her height as a problem. Yeah. Um, and she actually says that at some point that, oh, you know what? I didn't even I didn't even realize that I was looking down on you because she's she's internalized the lessons that she's learned in the game mm-hmm. about her own worth. All right. Do we want to move on from pop culture and tackle some uh, other stuff? I think we should. Yes. Yeah. Like the fact that you can get a, a microchip kidney, because honestly, the microchip <laughs> kidney is like the reason I wanted to be on this episode. Because oh my goodness, it's so cool. Okay, I think you just need to dive right into that because that's yeah, news nope. to me. Okay, the microchip kidney thing. So I've seen no updates on it since 2017, which is a crying shame. But like, what a concept! Actual technology that we have 
at least some evidence for that that works. So it's this microchip that some guy invented uh, at some university somewhere. I can't remember the name, uh, but <laughs> it uses your own blood flow to make kidney tissue that filters your blood. And it's sort of your blood flow basically makes it, it uses it uses your blood flow kind of as a motor to stimulate your own cells to generate this tissue. Fascinating. Is that not the coolest thing in the world? I think it's so cool. The Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. Thank you. That's incredible. It's so, it's amazing. I love it. I'm so excited. Because <laughs> I, I literally found out about this technology a couple of months after a family friend died of kidney failure. So mm. I was just like, well, mm. that would have been nice. Yeah. <laughs> but here we are. Okay. But yeah, anyway. For our listeners' sake, uh, we've decided to head into the area where we're actually discussing transhumanism in our current modern world. Um, yes. But that the microchip kidney, I'm like, no, no, go with that right now because that sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, to bring it back to Star Trek, you know, that was the, what was going on in that scene where the woman says, the doctor gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. <laughs> <laughs> Dialysis. It's like living in the dark ages. <laughs> well, and that actually is kind of one uh, one question of, of transhumanism. And granted, I haven't prepared a whole lot in this dynamic is that we, we wouldn't imagine taking a pill and now my kidney works as transhuman. There's like, oh, that's just restoring the function that we already have. But there is some question in terms of are are we already living the transhuman experience? With the advance of technologies, what would we look like to our earlier forebearers? Uh, what part of this looks more like wizardry than science uh, as as we get to shrug off problems that were that were lethal just mm. five hundred or a thousand years ago? I've been thinking about this a lot recently because, um, I'm going to try not to get political here, but uh, uh, regardless of of your opinions of his political stances, I've been reading a lot of Pyotr Kropotkin, the uh, basically inventor of modern anarchism. Um, and this guy was alive in around the 1800s, and his book, The Conquest of Bread, starts off with, isn't it cool that we have electrical lights now? <laughs> Right. <laughs> and like the entire beginning of the book is just him gushing about how cool it is that we have steam power. We have electrical lights. What are we doing growing our plants outside? We can grow everything inside now and make it easy. I'm like, oh, wow. Like what would happen if you just picked up this man who looks like Santa Claus and dropped him <laughs> in, you know, the middle of today, like, Compared to, you know, what the average Victorian would do, which would probably be like, where's your nearest fainting couch and pass out? I think Kropotkin <laughs> would have been like, this is so cool. And he would have been, you know, really super duper happy about it. So, um, uh, yeah, this is this is the thing I've been thinking a lot in terms of like the way that that we look to, you know, even a few decades ago, I think we're well into some level of transhumanism mm -hmm. like and we we actually have prosthetics that that have some amount of roboticism to them already and we can 3d print them oh my goodness 3d yeah. printing is is oh such. my gosh yes 
And also the question is not a matter of can we put a microchip inside somebody's skull? The question is how many people out there have microchips in their skull restoring some sort of function? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, cochlear implants, just for one example. Yeah. Yeah. And back to the uh, the 3D printing, I remember reading an article a couple of years ago how uh, I think it was a university in Minnesota uh, had released a method on 3D printing human skin uh, yes. for application for like uh, immediately for, for those who were in car accidents and for severe burn victims. And it, it blows my mind. It's and my thought was that that's just the begin. If we can do even something close to that. Or even if it's just you know something to hold the skin together while real skin grows back, that's just the beginning. That's just the start, and it's just going to keep getting more advanced as we go. I mean, I'm pretty sure we've already printed, like 3D printed a heart. I'm not sure it was a human heart. I think it might have been a pig heart, but I'm pretty sure we've already 3D printed like a whole dang organ, a complete one. It looked really weird. It was all white, like because there was no blood in it or anything. So <laughs> wild. Mr. Felix, we know you're in a bad accident, but don't worry. Your spleen was destroyed. We're printing you up a new one right now. And then from the next room, I start to hear a dot matrix printer fire up. <laughs> this is going to take a while. <laughs> Please just hold your stomach closed. While, for, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it's done printing, but we need to let it cure for 48 hours. Yeah. But we've given you a smart pill, which will keep the edge off, which is another thing I read about was programmable smart pills, which can be changed for whatever medical concern you're swallowing them for based on a human's biology and for whatever specific need that you have. And once again, how close are we to? I mean, I know there are variations of that happening right now, but how long until uh, the whole medical practice and pharmaceutical market is thrown into chaos because you no longer need a thousand different chemicals being put together in a thousand different ways to come up with the drugs you need. You just need one programmable pill. Well, I think these things aren't going to be uh, so revolutionary. I mean, it's, it's a gentle slope. I mean, I've got a device right now that I'm wearing. It's a little bit of wire and glass that lets me see things that are further away. What is this witchcraft you speak of, Brian? <laughs> well, I mean, it does kind of hit on a joke from Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars, where there is, which I, I love that bit. And there is the marshal holding a cyborg at gunpoint. And, you know, the marshal has, has some prejudice against cyborgs. And so the cyborg is talking about, well, what does it mean to be a cyborg? Well, what if I had lenses that allow me to, to see better than I already do? And he's like, well, if you wear that inside your skull rather than out, then you're a cyborg. And he's like, well, you've just described contact lenses. <laughs> and I mean, and while that's meant to be, you know, funny and all that, there is something to be said about this is, this is the gentle slope. Uh, we, we take for granted wearables. We take for granted uh, that there are things that we do integrate for for restorative purposes. And someone had recently put in the show notes, the Neuralink, which is about what the size of a quarter that sits level with your skull. You can flap your scalp over it and still grow hair and everything. And its current technological level is that of a Fitbit in your skull that can read, that can detect, that can, it doesn't, I don't think as of yet can deliver neurological impulses, but it can detect neurological impulses to let you open doors, operate a mouse, 
things mm-hmm. of that sort. They've done uh, early invasive uh, operations on pigs where it actually is transmitting into the brain. Uh, as far as I know, the, the Neuralink company itself is an Elon Musk thing, and they haven't done any human work that I'm aware of, uh, but there are similar technologies to what you describe uh, from some other companies. So essentially, these things are not just bits of science fiction. They're they're happening. Yeah, my husband came home from work one day, and he was telling me about one of his coworkers who's in sales, so she makes bank because she's very good at her job. But <laughs> she was describing to him this, it is a wearable micro, microchip that doesn't necessarily embed into your skin. Well, there's a very like minuscule needle that goes into your your upper arm to track your your blood sugar and stuff specifically not necessarily for any sort of like medical purpose other than for you know general health because then it tracks it all on this app that she has in her phone to help her regulate her diet more um Mm. Yeah. And he's like, isn't this cool? I know that you, we've been trying to like monitor our health more. Do you want one? I was like, nah, hard pass fam. I'm, I'm okay. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and he's like, why? And I'm like, well, one, how expensive is it? And they were, and you, cause you have to, you have to rotate, rotate them out. You don't just have one and you're done. Um, and they were like, yeah. And they were like 300 bucks a pop. And I was like, so if that doesn't slow you down, I have questions. Um, but additionally, any of a lot of my my suspicion when it comes to any of this like because sl- it's because it is the gradual slope that makes me nervous. If something was just like, and here's here's a thing, I'd be like, okay, that's like a a different a, a specific difference between what we have now and what we have then. But it's like the slow burn that always yeah. makes me nervous. Um, yeah, for me, I'm even too nervous to like dive into fitbits right because for me it's like the data thing exactly like Mm -hmm. i i am not comfortable with with some company having that much data on my dang body right exactly my own me yeah if it helps i'm actually wearing a fitbit and all this company is learning about me is how i am so lazy (laughs) well i mean that's one aspect but there's also uh, and this kind of gets into some of the philosophical concerns, uh, because the philosophical concerns that we have with with these these enhancements, whether they're wearables or whether they're under our under our skin, they're they're examinations of problems that already exist. The reason why you don't want the company having this much information is because surprise, surprise, Cambridge Analytics. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean. People have not been shown to be trustworthy with the things that are at this point now closest to our bodies. Yeah. And this gets even worse when we have some of the vices of corporate America working their way into into our health. And I, I don't want to be the kind of doom and gloom. Oh, my gosh, this could be so horrible. The, the sky is falling. The world is burning down. But we've we've had companies that have said. We have this brand new cancer screening. We are testing it. We are developing it. We're a startup. We're pushing this really hard. We're fundraising. We have these patients. See, we have all these these cancer screenings. See, we have these cancer screenings. We're getting such great results. And it turns out that uh, 
the fundraising was the more important part and they weren't being transparent about the fact that their data was actually crap. And a lot of these people, oops, did have cancer and didn't go to their doctors for their regular cancer screening because they were going to this company for their cancer screening. And now surprise, surprise, a lot of them have cancer and are getting treatment too late. Yeah. I think there's also uh, a particular plot device that I think, okay, I recently read the audiobook of um, uh, Cory Doctorow's Attack Surface. Uh, I have some mixed feelings on the actual quality of the writing, but it asked some interesting questions, less to do with transhumanism, more to do with where we are with data collection. But I think it also applies to the transhumanism thing. Um, we can hack a car now. Cars have many computers in them now. Mm-hmm. We can hack a car. What happens if we can hack like a pacemaker like i i i am as as cool as i think it would be to have robot legs to go to move super duper fast what if somebody else could move my robot legs for me i'm not comfy with that (laughs) let's just turn the wi-fi off you'll be fine well i was (laughs) i actually read an article a couple years back about there's a a research group somewhere i think it was in switzerland that is actually preemptively working on firewalls and antivirus for the, the brain computer interface. Oh yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like this, this technology doesn't exist yet. And they're already thinking about this is going to be really bad when people hack it. Cause well, someone's going to try. That's, yeah. that's not even a question. It's going to be four days in. <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you, if there's ransomware on my legs, I'm going to pay it. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Or worse, your optic nerve. Or your pancreas. Really. Yeah. 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 Darling, I think my bladder's been hijacked. Why? Reasons. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about what we want to address, um, what what that is left. I'm going to defer to our guests because they're our guests. Mm. No, I want to make sure, is there anything, is there anything here that Jenny, Ashley, that you want to make sure that, that we hit? I think we've already covered the vast majority of it. Yeah. Yeah. At various times. Yeah. Like there's nothing here that I feel like I can't lose. Like in Star Trek, you know, we, we do have the ship of Theseus question with tech and brains. Well, actually, I do want to ask about that a little bit because I want specifically Ashley's input on uh, if we have this situation where a person's consciousness has been transferred or, you know, they've they've suffered a horrible accident and 98% of their body has been replaced by computers, there's a a definite uh, spiritual concern there. I mean... I mean, obviously, this is not a, a question that can be answered. I understand that. <laughs> uh, but at what point do you start wondering, okay, well, what is this person's relationship with God like now that their consciousness has been duplicated? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's kind of always my question. Um, whenever anybody or any sort of effort is made to be, and not to say that this is like a conscious effort, that this is what they're thinking about as they make these advances, but it's the the consideration I'm constantly having while people make these advances is, you know, how, how much do we want to differentiate ourselves from Christ already? Um, and I'm not saying that like in a sort of uppity 
you know, pious way as if I am doing such a great job at emulating, (laughs) (laughs) but just in the sense of like, okay, how much of my, you know, human experience do I want to already differentiate in a way that has, or when we already have differentiated so much. Um, So I think the, the tactile and the physical are inherently important to understanding and communing with God. Um, So I, I really, I really, especially Gnosticism specifically. So the idea of, you know, you know, separating ourselves from our physicality, something that I really struggle with. I'm not, I'm not personally not comfortable with it. Um, As far as wanting to be able to commune with our loved ones and prolong their life, I understand that impulse, but I, I can't say that personally, I feel like it's a particularly wise decision because it's completely adapting and changing what our experience of this life of this mortal mortal coil is but granted you know until i'm ordained and you know have my first parishioner that rolls up on their robot body like i'm gonna (laughs) have to take that as it comes i certainly wouldn't treat them any differently you know i'd still give them the pastoral Mm -hmm. care that is required and i would suss that out with them personally um so i think any sort of you know theorizing i can do i think would ultimately come off as probably far more callous than I'm meaning to be. And certainly far more callous than I would ever be with any one individual. Um, These are just all the considerations and concerns I have anytime anybody makes any like drastic modifications to themselves that separates them from their own physicality ultimately. Okay. Yeah. I think I have a very different take on this because of what and who I think God is because I think of God in a very uh, potentially heretical, but very scientific kind of way. So I don't think about the, the removal or the uh, yeah, the removal of physicality as a thing that might separate um, a human from God or, or much of anything like that. I do have some concerns with like, the want of some people to live forever or to extend life super duper far, because I think that's just like you, you maybe need to examine your own dang self a little bit more. (laughs) I, that's, I find myself in a place where that idea is attractive to me because death is a, a dark and a scary thing, but I, I have to keep reminding myself that my fear there, my desire to go on, uh, indefinitely is a lack of trust in God. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah, for me, because I think of um, death as more of a swip swapping of which dimension my consciousness is in, um, rather than a, a complete and definite end, I am significantly less concerned about about that side of things not not to be all like high and mighty here like oh i'm, I'm thinking better <laughs> mm-hmm. about this than you like if i were to be told like oh no yeah you're gonna die tomorrow i'd be like not yet <laughs> <laughs> you're not one i'm not done <laughs> see i might be the outlier here it's the idea of stepping off of this mortal coil into eternity that scares the dickens out of me because that's Mm. finitude and ending is something that, okay, I'm comfortable with that. I understand what it means to end. You just do what you're doing and then not. (laughs) Um, Now you have the idea of existence forever, which is a thing I don't 
actually have a concept of. So for me, like dying is a trust in God for a very different reason. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it comes down to our personal, not our personal, but our mortal understanding of forever because we view it in a certain way and it's, it's almost too big for our minds as they are right now, but that's yeah. not going to be the case. Or I believe that that's not going to be the case when we are reunited with our Lord. Mm-hmm. One reason I talked about earlier about the idea of merging conscience with a, with a computer and living on that way scared me was because the limited function of existing in that way it's it's not something I want to think about. And it also, I, it took me a little bit to, to find it, but Hebrews, Hebrews 9.27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Um, I believe that forever is something that we're going to have to come into contact with one day. But when that day comes our ability to comprehend it is going to be changed in a way that now we cannot begin to understand. And I think that, you know, when I asked the question of you, like, well, why does that scare you? I mean, I, I think that there is something that we have this immediate, at least a lot of us have this immediate reaction of downloading my consciousness into, into some sort of supercomputer. The idea, at least for me at first is really, and I, I think I heard, Ashley and Jenny and James all have the same, at least similar reactions. And I can't speak for for y'all, but part of it for me, I think really goes back to to one of Ashley's earlier points that we have in our fiction, this idea that, oh, we just separate consciousness and physicality, like just pull those two apart. Uh, Harry Potter's soul gets sucked out of his body and he becomes a husk and the soul gets eaten. Okay. I'm comfortable with that. It's easy. It's right there on screen. I get it. (laughs) And really this idea of separating consciousness and existing apart from the body is in a sense, body horror. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. the idea of us waking up and being a computer. Well, where is my body? Uh, but again, it isn't my body. It is it, you. You are a body. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not you have a mind. You you are a mind. Uh, and we can we can get a lot into uh, mind body dualism and a lot of the problems there. But we don't have problems when you know, we don't. We're going to have time problems. Um, <laughs> we can dissect all that later. You don't want um, to open up an entirely new conversation. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's where some of this 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 fear factor comes from. Yeah, I think that's all I've I've personally got. Unless somebody else has something really really cool, they want to just drop in here. No, admittedly, my blood sugar's slow, so I'm starting. Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, do we just want to slide on into the zombie apocalypse strategy yeah, of the week? Yeah, I agree completely. Right. Yeah. So. All right. Usually we also extend, if anybody has any silly zombie strategies, we extend that to guests if they want to jump in with that. Okay. If not, what's that? I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't have any specific. We're all going to die then. We give the zombies Um... robot legs and we hack them. (laughs) Oh, shoot. I like that better. (laughs) No, just leave it. 
just leave that. That's our zombie apocalypse strategy of the week. And then we go. <laughs> All right. I'll, uh, I'll open up Visual Studio here and I'll get started on that. <laughs> yeah. I just question then, how do we get the robot legs on them in the first place? Brian's the VFX guy. He does it in post. What what if it was like what if it was like a what what are they called? Punji traps? But yeah. instead of the spikes in there, it's, it's the legs. No, because that's gonna interfere with my grand plan. Once I hack the legs and have them under my control, I'm gonna put on the soundtrack to Hamilton. <laughs> See, we also have a core of disreputable morticians that'll just do it before the apocalypse starts. Like they, they, just, they just. I feel like we, without even introducing it, we've already done the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there it is. There it is. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> well, unless there are any final thoughts on transhumanism or dancing zombies, which really a correlation could be made for the two. Then I think that that will. Michael Jackson has something to say about that. <laughs> we'll ask him once we get the robot legs attached. That is going to wrap it up for us this episode. First off, I want to extend a humongous thank you to Ashley and Jenny for joining us this episode. It has been a blast. It here, has. Here. Thank you thank very you. much for for inviting us on. It's been a great time. Mm. And uh, please, once again, uh, let our listeners know where they can find each of you online. Uh, you can find me, uh, Jenny, at stgcast.org on the Saving the Game podcast. Uh, you can find us there on Twitter, at Saving the Game. Um, if you want to follow me personally on Twitter, I don't remember my Twitter handle because I never have to type it out my own self. It's Ninja uh, Wheels Slime. Yeah. yeah, at Ninja Wheels Slime on Twitter. <laughs> Which I, I imagine there's a story there, but we don't probably don't have time. It's for very it. boring. It's honestly so dang boring. <laughs> Then write your own I fan didn't, fiction, I didn't, folks. I, I, okay, okay. I, I, I have canon want, now, so... Okay. I didn't want the nickname that my friends gave me in grade eight, so I made one up, and I made it <laughs> stick by force. I support that decision. You can find me on the MinMax podcast. Um, if you just literally Google... I'm so bad at podcast chores. We usually make Alan do them. Um, but <laughs> just Google the MinMax podcast. And you'll find us on Stitcher and, you know, the podcast app, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, MinMax Pod is all of our socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, minmaxpod at gmail.com if you want to email us. Or you can send us a voicemail. It's very fancy. Um, if you're looking for <laughs> me personally on Twitter is probably where I'm the most active, unless you want to see a lot of pictures of my cats. But on Twitter, um, I'm D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K. Um, and I just kind of tweet a lot of nonsense that people sometimes find funny <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us online at geekatarms.com at facebook.com slash geekatarms and mike what's our twitter we are at arms geek on twitter and finally from brian mike james and ashley and jenny we want to say be safe be blessed and be geeky Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. This is those long, awkward pauses I was talking about earlier. Yeah. yeah, sorry. We're just going to cut all those together into an awkward, silent supercut. <laughs> <laughs>